It means these young people are incapable of providing for their livelihoods. There is migration into urban areas. There is no work. There is distress. There is all these kind of things. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My guest today, Monica Juma, is the National Security Advisor to Kenyan President William Ruto. Kenya is a stable democracy in a tough neighborhood. There is an ongoing Islamist insurgency across the border in Somalia, and nearby Sudan is in the midst of a spiraling civil war. On top of it all, the Horn of Africa is experiencing its worst drought in 40 years. I asked Monica Juma about each of these challenges, starting with how climate change is impacting Kenya's national security. Today's episode was recorded live at the Aspen Security Forum. It is the last of three interviews I conducted on site in the middle of July, the others including Nobel Peace Prize laureate Alexandra Matvichuk and international relations scholar Joseph Nye. If you are a podcast subscriber or follower, you'd have received those episodes directly in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or however you get Global Dispatches. If not, take a moment to hit the subscribe or follow button. To get transcripts of these interviews, other opinion pieces we publish, and to generally keep up with our work, please subscribe to our free newsletter at globaldispatches.org. And while you're there, you can use the contact button to get in touch with me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. I love hearing from you. All right, now here is my conversation with Kenya's National Security Advisor, Monica Juma, recorded live at the Aspen Security Forum. I wanted to kick off by asking you about the security implications of the current drought, the climate-driven drought. How are you seeing the drought manifest itself in terms of like negative security consequences for Kenya right now? The drought has to be contextualized within the larger climate crisis, which is becoming more accentuated and its manifestations have become more and more apparent 
particularly in the Horn of Africa. Not necessarily in the Horn of Africa alone, but in the Horn of Africa, it is quite clear that there is a correlation between ecological stress caused by climate factors, such as prolonged drought. And the last, before this rains, we had almost four years of no rains. And that is coming upon many other fragilities, COVID-19, financial crisis, war in Ukraine, and so forth. The effect of that to both people and countries has been huge. In Kenya alone, we lost about 2.5 million livestock. Now, this livestock is for the common people. So it's people who are owning three, two cows or goats or whatever. And when that goes, it wipes their asset base completely, you know, and that has a ramification at the next level, at the next family level, at the society level, at the country level. Could you spell that out a bit? Like, what are the security implications of the economic devastation that accompanying this climate change-induced drought? Well, when you have stress of this kind, first of all, livestock farmers are under duress because they can't find grazing lands, they can't find water for their animals, they try to move in search for pasture and water, and sometimes this translates into conflict with farming communities, you know, and we saw that across all the border areas or between livestock farmers and grain farmers because of that limited pasture, limited water, you know, dry plants and things like that. Then you have a situation where because we are predominantly an agricultural country, when there are no rains, it means you cannot put people to farms. It means these young people are incapable of providing for their livelihoods. There is migration into urban areas. There is no work. There is distress. There is all these kind of things. And all these tend to create an increase in crime levels. You see an increase in violence and things like that. So this manifests both at the personal level, but also at country level, at national level. Because when you're faced with an emergency, prolonged emergency, such as this one, a government must of necessity provide emergency response. It means you're taking away from your development budget to respond to the stress that the populations are facing. We've had situations where even kids in school, we have had to introduce school feeding programs to retain them in schools. And when that is not available for a prolonged period of time, you get kids falling out of school, you get violence against children, especially girls, you get pregnancies, you get kids that don't ever go back to school again, and a whole livelihood actually is completely transformed in a negative sense, which leads to violence, whether it is material violence because they cannot survive, or whether it's violence because there's limited resources that people conflict over. So... Yesterday on stage, you identified terrorism as the top security concern for you as a national security advisor in Kenya, terrorism being from al-Shabaab predominantly. Do you see a link between al-Shabaab and its continued violence and its continued persistence, the fact that it's it's still there in, in Somalia after so many years and has branches presumably in Kenya as well, and climate change. Is there a link between climate and the al-Shabaab insurgency and terrorism? Well, first of all, I, I think al-Shabaab's networks 
are far and wide. They go beyond Kenya in terms of sales, in terms of recruiting, in terms of facilitating systems and things like that. But in a situation, we also know that Al-Shabaab, like any other terrorist organization, thrives in areas of distress because they are able to recruit, they are able to offer services, so to speak, and they are able to hold populations hostage very easily, you know. So when there is distress on the population, you can see the linkage between that and the appetite for recruitment. If you go to a young person who doesn't have a job and you persuade them, you know, that you are going to give them a job in Somalia, and you have had many young people in Kenya that have actually been lured into Somalia, into the ranks of Al-Shabaab, believing that they were actually going for international jobs. Some of them have returned, some of them have not. So there is a direct linkage between this ecological stress and Al-Shabaab recruitment and Al-Shabaab activity. Yes. And one of the drivers of out-migration from Somalia to Kenya is obviously the drought. And just it's just much worse in Somalia than it is in mm. Kenya. Mm. And you've seen a massive influx of people, particularly mm. in Dadaab and in other refugee camps in the area. Do you see that as a security threat? It is to the extent that the refugee camps sometimes have been infiltrated. A number of attacks in Kenya have been planned and executed out of those refugee camps. And part of it is the challenge of large groups of people moving together, you know, so that you're not able to separate. But we also have a situation where those protected areas have become attractive for Al-Shabaab agents. And they have used protected spaces, whether it is refugee camps, whether it is churches, as I said, whether it is mosques, whether it is schools for recruitment, for planning, for execution of attacks. And so, yes, movement of refugees, large numbers of refugees staying in refugee camps for protracted periods of time uh, provides opportunities that have been used by terrorist agents. I'd love to sort of flip the script and ask you about solutions. Like, what policies are you pursuing to disrupt that link between climate and security threats to Kenya? Well, we are undertaking a lot of programs. The president, since he came to power, has focused attention on the climate crisis quite deliberately. At the national level, as a country, we have always been on the lead in terms of environmental sustainable management. We have a big regeneration project of planting trees across the country, 15 billion trees, and that has already started. But we are also focusing on targeted, fragile regions, for example, refugee camps. And there's a big debate at the policy level whether we should actually not exit the model of encamping people as refugees. We already have a pilot project on this, Colobio that is doing very well, where we are encouraging integration of refugees. Of course, in the case of the camps in Dadaab, we are talking about hundreds of thousands of people. So reintegration also has some very practical challenges to do, but we are doing regeneration. We are encouraging as much as possible public safety and security so that you can be able to isolate or reduce the possibility of infiltration by 
terrorist agents and actors. We are encouraging closer cooperation with local people for information sharing so that it can help in terms of detecting and deterrence. And this has come a long way. So there's a gamut of activities that we are engaged in in this regard. So you referenced a policy debate around refugee camps and Dadaab in particular. Dadaab has been up for debate in Kenyan politics and Kenyan policy over whether or not to close the camp or do something different with it. Where do you stand on that debate? It's an evolving debate. There are big issues. First of all, there's an issue around the fact that when a country is hosting refugees, you're doing it also on behalf of the international community. We are having refugee camps here that have been with us for over 30 years, you know, and we feel that we continue to carry a disproportionate burden in this regard. Having said that, we are engaged in a whole range of activities in terms of supporting Somalia because we have seen there is no one who wishes to stay in a refugee camp. And actually, even when we have areas that have been taken away from Al-Shabaab, we've seen people voluntarily returning home. So we are very keen, even in terms of the development in Somalia, because we know positive development, rehabilitation would actually clear those camps because people would rather go home rather than stay in an encampment for the period of time we have seen in some of those camps. So as you noted, Kenya is feeling the disproportionate burden of instability and security in Somalia now for decades. Things seem to be doing a bit better in recent years. However, al-Shabaab is still obviously an ongoing threat. Are there concrete steps the international community could take, the United Nations, key donor countries, to ameliorate the situation in Somalia, or at least support a added modicum of stability there? The international community has been with Somalia for a long time, as we all know. They have supported the mission there. We've always felt that mission had not been supported fully, and that has been the case for many other missions, <laughs> to be fair. We believe that more can be done, particularly focusing on rehabilitation and building the capacity of the Somali states to one hold territory that has been taken from al-Shabaab to provide social services to its population so that the population is not held hostage by al-Shabaab through the provision of services as they do in some cases. So I think there is a whole area there of support that can have a significant positive impact on the Somali government to effectively govern, effectively over services, and therefore deny al-Shabaab the stronghold that they have sometimes enjoyed among its population. I wanted to turn to Sudan, arguably the worst crisis in the region that's unfolding right now. First, how is Kenya experiencing the conflict in Sudan? Have there been a number of refugees that have traveled to Kenya yet? It seems most are going to the nearer countries. Yes, of course, uh, in a situation like that, most of the people, as they are fleeing, they end up in the next door. And we do not share an immediate border with Sudan. Nonetheless, we are members of the same region. You know, we are members of IGAD, for example. But even before South Sudan became independent, Sudan was our neighbor because South Sudan is our neighbor. So the effect of the crisis in Sudan is quite serious. It's having 
huge implications for the entire neighborhood. Hundreds of thousands of people are in each of those countries, Chad, Egypt, C.A.R., South Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and so forth. And some are even going further afield. We still have some, but not as large numbers as those immediate neighboring countries. If present trends continue in Sudan, what do you foresee being the regional security implications? Well, first of all, we hope the situation doesn't continue deteriorating. It's really serious. And we've been calling very intensely for the deployment of all pressure, all pressure to stop the war because the humanitarian crisis is tragic. Some people have defined it as being apocalyptic. It is really serious that the type of violence against civilians in general, but particularly women and girls, is deplorable. The destruction both of the country, physical infrastructure, is setting Sudan many, many, many years back, and it will be very expensive to reconstruct. It will take a very long time. But increasingly, it is also having an impact beyond the immediate neighborhood. We know, for example, that some of the forces that are fighting in the Sudan have been recruited from across the Sahel belt. And that, to my mind, opens into the Sahel crisis and complicates the equation much further. You know, speaking about Western Sudan, on stage yesterday, you compared the situation in Darfur today to the genocide of the early 2000s. There's a, a debate that's beginning to percolate, I'm seeing in civil society. It hasn't reached, I think, the level of diplomats yet, in which people are starting to think about invoking the responsibility to protect R2P in order to justify some sort of more robust international intervention, at least in Western Sudan, in Darfur. Is that something you would consider? The reports that are coming out of Darfur suggest that there is a massive humanitarian crisis that is unfolding. Large numbers are left. There is very limited communication and information coming out. So the details are not available. But the stories that are coming out of Chad out of southern Sudan, for those that are going southwards, out of satellite imagery, are worrisome. They are worrisome. And I think the discussion, even within the IGAD, in terms of the need for civilian protection, has actually been ventilated. So there's an intense discussion about what form that could take and how it could be achieved. I mean, could you foresee a Kenyan military deployment under the auspices of the African Union with a UN Security Council resolution under like an R2P well, going I, to Western Sudan, going to Darfur? Kenya is bound by its membership to the various organizations, and some of them are dealing with this matter quite closely. My president chairs the quartet of IGAD that is dealing with this matter. And if that decision is taken at that level, we will make our contribution. So you mentioned earlier, international pressure is what's needed to disrupt the current terrible trajectory of the conflict in Sudan. Anything specific, concrete, what kind of pressure do you think would be most impactful? Well, we are very grateful, I think, for the sanctions that have been placed on both sides. 
But I think those sanctions need to go with something else. You know, ordinarily in such a complex situation, one act cannot deliver the pressure that you're looking for. I think part of that pressure must be a concert of action by all actors. There has been a sense that there has not been sinking of efforts. And this is what the discussion is on about in terms of how do you make sure you can coordinate more effectively, you can have a clear division of labor that is complementing, you know, that various actions are complementing one another. Because if you do it that way, then you deny the actors and belligerents forum shopping, which has the effect of delaying action, making it suboptimal, fragmenting response, and all these things. So I think there is a sense in which the situation demands a collective committed and firm action that is taken in concert. And on Sudan, in the coming weeks or months, are there any indicators that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not the situation continues to deteriorate? Or alternatively, if there is like a sinking of international pressure and a reduction in violence? Every day, there is more and more people that are paying attention to Sudan. I think the prioritization of the Sudan file needs to escalate in every capital because what is happening concerns everybody that believes in the sanctity of human life, that believes in the dignity of life, that believes in peace and security, that believes in democratic aspiration of our people. So I think the prioritization of this file really is important. Secondly, I think we have an opportunity in terms of the key actors. The UK is a pen holder for the Sudan in the UN Security Council. We've been in conversation with the UK. The US will be chairing the Security Council next month. So we hope that all those opportunities can be used to persuade both sides in Sudan that one, this war is unlikely to be settled militarily from what we have seen. And the losses and uh, damages that have already been inflicted really are humongous. And we need to step away from this fighting. But secondly, and most urgently, there is need for humanitarian assistance to Sudanese people across nearly all corners of that country, and particularly in Darfur. I think that is important. And so mobilizing that within the largest network and infrastructure of humanitarian assistance is useful. In the last meeting of IGAD Quartet, the OCHA chief, Martin Griffith, was in attendance to brief on his assessment of the humanitarian need and on the planning in terms of how he can engage rapidly and at the quantum that is required to save lives. Lastly, are there other either security concerns or promising solutions to security challenges that kind of are fly under the radar that you would want to highlight to an audience that might not be as attuned to these things as you? Well, first of all, the fight, like the one that is unfolding in Sudan, generates a lot of other problems. For example, you can imagine that there is no medical facilities that are adequately being deployed. So you're likely to run into a situation of 
a whole generation of children that are not vaccinated, that are, you know, and that just multiplies the problem, not just now, but for the future. And becomes even sets up another burden to the health system of a country. We are thinking about the problem of displacement means that communities that are agricultural communities are incapable, are unable to undertake the agricultural activities, including planting, like in the Western Darfur area. Now in Darfur, the rains are expected anytime soon. But because of this displacement, farmers are unlikely to go to their fields, they're unlikely to plant. The implication of this is that we are likely to have food shortage in the next season, you know, and that compounds the vulnerability, the challenge on the population and on the, and puts a burden on the state. So there are very many other factors that are triggered by the kind of situation that we are seeing in Sudan. It seems to underscore the urgency of ending this conflict Absolutely. as soon as possible. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Juma, thank you so much for your time. I'm glad thank we were able you. to speak. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.